Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the ninth installment of our series on the rise and fall of Theranos and its founder and former CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. So that officially makes this the longest series our podcast has done covering one case. The longest one prior to this one was an eight-parter on Patreon where we discussed the 2011 death of 20-year-old college student Morgan Ingram out of the state of Colorado. There has long been a debate as to whether Morgan's amitriptyline overdose was an accident, suicide, or murder. That was a pretty good series, if I do say so myself, because it was a little bit different in that what we did was we went through just about every single one of the TV shows and interviews that Morgan's mother and father, Tony and Steve, had conducted over the years. And we went point by point to uncover many of the lies and inconsistencies that have been surrounding that case all of these years. That's on Patreon, but the whole series, all eight parts, are accessible for only $1. And in fact, part one of that series is unlocked for anybody who wants to take a listen just to get a sample of what Patreon is all about. So you can check it out, at least a sample of that series for free if you like. California Dreaming is an independent show, and there are a number of ways that you can help support. You can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice rating and a review, or whichever directory that you listen to your podcasts on. That helps to grow our audience, and it gives the show more visibility, so new listeners will be able to find us. You can also like the show on Facebook, join the discussion group, and follow us on Instagram and on Twitter. And if you just so happen to run out of the free episodes of California Dreaming, then you can become a subscriber on Patreon. Starting at just $1 a month, you can gain access to a whole bunch of episodes you won't hear anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't your thing, but you still would like to pitch in, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. I have some thank yous for those of you who have either joined Patreon, raised your pledge, or went annual or made a one-time donation through PayPal. So thank you to Shronda C., Marissa R., Jade B., Betty S., Helen B., Michael W., and Angie B. All right, let's get to today's episode. The sources of this series include the book by Wall Street journalist John Carreyrou called Bad Blood, as well as several online articles and documents about this case. Everything will be cited in the show and in the show notes as needed. So to recap, in part eight, we were introduced to one of the most important figures in the story when it comes to the truth about Theranos beginning to be revealed, a young man fresh out of Stanford named Tyler Schultz. He is also the grandson of one of Elizabeth Holmes's most important consultants and members of the board of directors, former Secretary of State George Schultz. We went into great detail about all of the things that Tyler began to see that was wrong with Theranos and their practices when it came to operating a clinical laboratory. And it wasn't only him. A young woman named Erica Chung, hired one month after Tyler, saw some of the same things, and shared some of the same concerns. Tyler tried at first speaking to Elizabeth about the things that worried him, but she was largely dismissive and urged him to go and talk to her number three guy, Daniel Young. But all Daniel did was spin things in a way 
that really didn't make it any less shady. Tyler sought an expert opinion, which only confirmed that he had much to be worried about. And ultimately, he came to the decision that after only about six months with Theranos that he needed to quit. His grandpa managed to talk him out of it temporarily and encouraged Tyler to hang in there, urging him to reach out to Elizabeth once again and give her a chance to explain things to him. But when Tyler tried talking to her, she shuffled him off to Sunny, who responded with a scathing email reply that berated him and told him that he was too young to know what he was talking about. So Tyler decided to resign. And his resignation was followed up with a threat issued to Tyler through his grandfather. Stop this vendetta that he had against Elizabeth immediately or else he would pay dearly. Erica resigned shortly thereafter and she was also issued a threat. Keep her mouth shut about Theranos and do not dare to write anything on the internet about the company because they will find out and she would be sorry. So now the story circles back to Dr. Richard Fwiz. Remember him? He was the one who went and got a patent that he predicted that Elizabeth was going to need some time down the road. Now, in this series, I did skip ahead in the timeline, and I went over how the whole thing ended. Theranos ended up suing Richard and his son Joseph. It was ultimately settled. The Fwizzes agreed to withdraw the patent that they were given. In exchange, Theranos would drop their lawsuit. No money would be awarded, and both parties would just have to eat their legal costs. So it was kind of a draw, but Richard saw it as a loss because he did have to give up his patent. Even though he had obtained it out of vindictiveness towards Elizabeth for launching a biotech company without consulting him, it was all really petty, but that was how that all ended. However, on March 17, 2014, there was an article that ran in Litigation Daily, which is a law newsletter, and it was written by Julia Love. It was mainly about David Boyes. He was the attorney representing Theranos in that lawsuit with the Fwizzes. And I wouldn't even say that it was an article, but rather it was just a very short blurb with the headline reading, Family Gives Up Disputed Patent ending trial with Boise's client. The article said, two days into a San Jose trial, inventor Richard Fwiz and his son Joseph settled their suit with Boise, Schiller, and Flexner client Theranos Incorporated, a high-profile medical testing startup. As part of the deal, the parties agreed that the Fwiz's patent for bodily fluid analysis will be declared invalid. The Fwizzes were accused of filing the patent application with confidential Theranos documents handed to them by a former partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, an allegation that the firm and the lawyer deny. Well, it just so happened that the legal correspondent for Fortune magazine, a gentleman by the name of Roger Parloff, happened to notice the article. And the reason it caught his eye wasn't because of Richard Fwizz or Theranos, but rather because of the very, very high-profile attorney that had taken on the patent case, 
David Boyes. Boyes is a guy who is one of the most prominent attorneys in the United States. I talked about him in the previous episode when we went into details about this case. He has gone up against Napster, Microsoft, President George Bush in the 2000 election dispute, Medco Health Solutions, Los Angeles Dodgers owner Frank McCourt in his divorce, Tom Brady in the NFL's antitrust case against him, Google, and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. He's represented CBS in a libel suit, American Express, filmmaker Michael Moore, the NBA during the lockout in 2011, Oracle in their lawsuit against Google, tobacco companies Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, and Liggett Group, Bob and Harvey Weinstein, not in anything criminal, but rather in some contract negotiations back in 2015, Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, and Boyce is currently representing several of Jeffrey Epstein's accusers. According to Carrie Rue's book, Richard's other son, John, was really mad about the settlement that his dad and his brother reached with Theranos. He was mad at the both of them, he was mad at Theranos, and he was mad at David Boyes. So he ended up emailing reporter Julia Love and kind of insinuated that David Boyes had attempted to bribe him the night before the settlement. He told her that he was going to sue David Boyes and both his dad and his brothers would be named as co-defendants and he forwarded the email to one of the attorneys at Boyes' law firm named Mike Underhill as well as his dad and his brother and John warned them that anything that they emailed back to him he would be sending it out to reporters and journalists that cover legal matters. Mike Underhill was really angry and he denied that there was ever any bribing and said that he and boys would make sure that he would pay if he continued to make such allegations. David Boyce himself replied with this ominous message. Those who the gods would destroy, they first make mad. Well, anyway, like I said, Roger Parloff saw something in what was going on here with boys having gotten involved with a completely unknown biotech startup such as Theranos over patent was something unheard of. Normally, Boyce's time would be much too valuable for such a case, and he would have passed it down to one of his associates to take care of. We know how Elizabeth operates, and she always aims high in everything that she does and everybody that she associates with. When it came to product development, she took aim at hiring Apple employees. When it came to her board of directors, she aimed for the biggest names that she could get in government and corporate America. When it came to branding, marketing, and advertising, she hired a $6 million per year company in Shyatt Day. And when it comes to legal representation, Elizabeth also spared no expense. That's why she ended up with David Boyes, along with several other high-profile attorneys that she's hired in the past. This intrigued Roger Parloff, and he wanted to know more. In his experience, when there's something unusual going on, it will probably make for a great story.
And then there was the Fwiz's side of it all. Why was the son and brother of the defendants in the Theranos case, John Fwiz, who was also an attorney, threatening to sue Theranos and David Boys? Smelling something really juicy, Parloff called up Boys' publicist, Don Schneider. Well, I don't know. I don't think it's a publicist. It's more like a, a PR person. Luckily for Parloff, Boys had just been talking to Don, and they both thought it would be a good idea to get some media attention around the case. She said that she would come over and talk to Parloff in person. They both worked within a couple of blocks from one another in midtown Manhattan. But you know, as Don made her way over to Roger's office, she got to thinking about the overall story. And to her, she found the whole thing about Theranos and Elizabeth way more interesting than all that legal junk with boys and fuzzes and all of them. There's this company founded by this brilliant, apparently brilliant, college dropout. While she knew nothing about Elizabeth, David Boys had been talking about how fabulous that she was for a number of years by then. So Don thought it would be good for David if she were to spread the word about this Silicon Valley starlet that nobody else had ever heard of before. So when she got to Roger's office, she had completely ditched the idea about talking about the boys' drama with the Fwizzes, but instead, she was going to tell him that this might be the company that he wished he'd written about before it became a household name, before it became ingrained in people's everyday lives like Google or Facebook. Roger Parliff was like, count me in a cover story about the biggest company the world has never heard of. He saw this as his chance on jumping on something big before everybody else. A couple of weeks later, Roger was on a plane from New York to California to not just interview Elizabeth, but to spend time with her. Like most people, the first thing that had him a little bit shocked was the deep tone of her voice. Dreamers, in the beginning, I really wasn't sure if Elizabeth's voice was her real voice or if she purposefully lowered her tone in order to sound more authoritative or to be taken more seriously in this male-dominated world of tech startups. Since then, I've been pretty convinced that it was just another thing that Elizabeth faked because we've heard snippets of her slipping in and out of the tone of a normal young woman's voice and she would immediately correct herself. Which, I guess when you think about it, that doesn't really make sense, since the voice isn't real, so technically, she would be incorrecting herself back into her deep tone. But also, because I just recently watched the Hulu series episode that began to focus on Ian Gibbons, we had our discussion about him back in part six, and there was a scene in the Hulu series where Ian is talking, I think, to Channing Robertson. I believe that's who it was. And he's discussing how much Elizabeth had changed over the years, and then he mentioned the voice. I realize that there's a lot of dialogue in the Hulu series that's being filled in, but as I'm watching it, I can see that it is closely following the event as we've laid them out in the series, 
There's some fictionalization and dramatization, I'm sure, but a lot of it does have a real feel of authenticity to it. And Ian Gibbons noting the change in Elizabeth's voice is something a lot of people who knew the before and after version of Elizabeth have noticed. And by the way, it may have been a prudent decision on Elizabeth's part to try and do what she needed to do in order to find success in the tech industry and as founders of companies because statistics have shown that it is more difficult for women to raise venture capital. However, women are on the rise as founders and CEOs of their own companies. Every year, millions of companies are founded by women, and a recent report from Workbench.com revealed that San Francisco does have the highest concentration of female-founded enterprise tech startups with a whopping 48.3% of the companies being founded by women. And New York is second with 26.8%. The leading sectors for these startups founded by women are human resources and the future of work, followed by data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. So it's really, it's really too bad when it comes to Elizabeth's legacy, because she did have some qualities to be admired. Erica Chung saw her as a mentor, as a woman in this field that they were in. But in the end, Elizabeth turned out to be pretty glib and one-dimensional. Anyway, as I said, Roger Parloff, like most, he was pretty shook by the voice. But once he got past that, he was pretty taken by Elizabeth just as so many before and after him would be, swept away by her intelligence and her charisma and her charm. He found her to be pleasant and intriguing. When they discussed Theranos and blood testing, Elizabeth was sharp and passionate, but whenever their conversation veered off onto other topics, he found her to be quite unpretentious and reserved and diffident. But in the hours that they spent talking, Elizabeth regulated what she said and the information that she shared very carefully. She was very measured in the things that she would tell him and how she would say it. But she did reveal something pretty huge. Theranos had recently brought in upwards of $400 million in investor capital bringing Theranos' valuation to $9 billion. And that made it one of the most valuable Silicon Valley startups at the time. She did show Roger the mini lab. However, she didn't tell him that it was called the mini lab. She wasn't going to allow him to publish photos of it. And when he wrote about it in his article, he was to refer to it as an analyzer. Don't call it a device. Don't call it a machine. Don't call it a comeback. I'm just kidding. It's an analyzer. Roger was so impressed with what he had been told by Elizabeth, what Theranos' technology was all about, and he truly saw it as she described it as something that was groundbreaking, cutting edge, and ingenious. She told Roger that they were able to conduct more than 200 tests on their analyzers using their proprietary technology 
that would require only a finger-prick-sized sample of blood. Like most people who were impressed by Theranos' technology and its capabilities, Roger was no expert in biomedicine, and he had no background that would have given him any means to verify the things that Elizabeth was telling him. So he took some time and interviewed some of the members of the board of directors, people who are going to go down as some of the most prominent individuals in modern American history. Roger interviewed George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, James Mattis, as well as former Wells Fargo CEO Richard Kovovich and former Senate Majority Leader Bill First. And with the exception of Bill First, you know, none of these guys had any more expertise than Roger when it came to being able to speak to the validity of the technological capabilities of Theranos' blood analyzers. They were given the same jive, the same rigmarole as Roger had been given. But they were able to validate Elizabeth herself. They believed in her. They believed in Theranos. And they all held Elizabeth in high regard as a brilliant woman with impeccable character. Secretary Schultz told Roger that Elizabeth had a purity of motivation and that she is working to make the world a better place, and Theranos was her way of doing it. General Mattis described Elizabeth as being a person of tremendous integrity, with a mature and well-honed sense of personal, managerial, business, and medical ethics that he's ever heard anyone articulate. All of this garbage was detailed in Carrie Rue's book, but it ultimately did not end up in the article itself that Roger published. And because of all of the fantabulous things that all of these well-respected men on the board of directors had to say about Elizabeth, it left him feeling very comfortable that everything about the young billionaire was on the level. Besides, Roger himself, he was an attorney. He is an attorney. He's written about all sorts of white-collar criminals, so he felt as if he was pretty astute when it came to spotting a fraudster. He did notice how measured and protective and secretive Elizabeth was when speaking about Theranos, but otherwise he found Elizabeth to be quite authentic and earnest, just a no-nonsense kind of a person. Even though Roger had become interested in Theranos because of the patent lawsuit, and the company being represented by David Boyes, he was no longer going to be writing about it. So he found no reason to contact the Fwizzes. I don't know if it would have mattered if he did or not. I would be surprised if part of the settlement that the Fwizzes had reached with Theranos did not include Richard and his sons being unable to speak publicly about the case and the details of the settlement. I'm sure that they were not allowed to speak of it at all. So, Carrie wrote, When Parloff's cover story was published in the June 12, 2014 issue of Fortune, it vaulted Elizabeth to instant stardom. Her journal interview had gotten some notice, and there was also a piece in Wired, but there was nothing like a magazine cover to grab people's attention. 
especially when that cover featured an attractive young woman wearing a black turtleneck, dark mascara around her piercing blue eyes, and bright red lipstick next to the catchy headline, This CEO is out for blood. So dreamers, I subscribed to the $1 for the first month trial of fortune. So I could count the lies. I mean, read the article and I would be able to share it with you. Grab your shovels because the BS is about to get real and deep. I would do something fun, like maybe shots every time we catch a lie, but we'll probably end up with alcohol poisoning and needing to get our stomachs pumped. And it's Saturday, and I really don't feel like doing that. The article starts off with the usual junk about her dropping out of Stanford at 19 and in an announcement to one of her professors, Channing Robertson, that she's going to start her own company. And you know, legend has it that that's the last time Elizabeth Holmes ever said anything truthful. The article stated, Holmes had just spent the summer working in a lab at the Genome Institute in Singapore, a post that she had been able to fill thanks to having been learning Mandarin in her spare hours as a Houston teenager. Upon returning to Palo Alto, she showed Robertson a patent application that she had just written. As a freshman, Holmes had taken Robertson's seminar on advanced drug delivery devices, things like patches, pills, and even a contact lens like film that secreted glaucoma medication but now she had invented the likes of which robertson had never conceived it was a wearable patch that in addition to administering a drug would monitor variables in the patient's blood to see if the therapy was having the desired effect and it adjusted the dosage accordingly Channing Robertson noted that he was low-key disappointed in himself because this had been his jam for more than 30 years, and he had never thought of bringing those components together. Either way, he didn't think it was a good idea for Elizabeth to launch a company without first finishing up her education, but she insisted that that was what she wanted to do. She didn't want to have impact on the world of biotechnology across time. She wanted to invent a completely different kind of technology. Quote, one that is aimed at helping humanity at all levels, regardless of geography or ethnicity or age or gender. Robertson thought it was quite possible that he was looking at the next Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. This article was also the first time that Theranos publicly listed its evaluation. By the summer of 2014, when it was published, Theranos was valued at more than $9 billion after having raised some $400 million from equity sales to investors, and this was apparently confirmed to Roger by an outside director. All of this in spite of Theranos being mostly unknown, even within the Silicon Valley. Elizabeth lied, quote, This is about being able to do good. And it's about being able to change the healthcare system through what we believed this country does so well, which is innovation and creativity and the ability to conceive of technology that can help solve policy challenges. Then Roger pointed out 
how Theranos moved away from Elizabeth's original patch idea and on to what it was doing in the present time. Roger wrote, Theranos today is a potentially highly disruptive upstart. Um, yeah, that didn't happen. In America's $73 billion diagnostic lab industry, which performs nearly 10 million tests a year and is estimated to provide the basis for about 70% of doctors' medical decisions, Medicare and Medicaid each pay out roughly $10 billion annually on reimbursements for these tests. And dreamers, here comes a slew of lies. Theranos runs what's called a high-complexity laboratory, certified by the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, and it is licensed to operate in nearly every state. It currently offers more than 200, and it's ramping up to offer more than 1,000 of the most commonly ordered blood diagnostic tests, all without the need for a syringe. Theranos' tests can be performed on just a few drops of blood or about one one-hundredth to one one-thousandth the amount that would ordinarily be required, an extraordinary potential boon to frequently tested hospital patients or cancer victims, the elderly, infants, children, the obese, those on anticoagulants, or simply anyone with an aversion to blood draws. Theranos phlebotomist technicians licensed to take blood draw it with a finger stick using a patented method that minimizes even the minor discomfort involved with that procedure. To me, it felt more like a tap than a puncture. So yeah, she stuck Roger with the thing too in his finger. She goes around just sticking everybody in the finger whenever she meets them as if like she just carries this shit around with her everywhere she goes, right? The article continued, the company has performed as many as 70 different tests from a single draw of 25 to 50 microliters collected in a tiny vial the size of an electric fuse, which Holmes has dubbed a nanotainer. Such a volley of tests with conventional techniques would require numerous tubes of blood, each containing 3,000 to 5,000 microliter samples. The fact that Theranos' technology uses such microscopic amounts of blood should eventually allow physicians far greater latitude when ordering so-called reflex tests than they have previously enjoyed. With reflex testing, the physician specifies that if a certain test comes up abnormal, the lab should immediately perform follow-up tests on the same sample to pinpoint the cause of the abnormality. Reflex testing saves patients time, inconvenience, cost, and pain of returning doctor visits and additional blood draws. The result of Theranos' tests are available within hours, often matching the speed of emergency stat labs today, though stat labs, which are highly inefficient, can usually perform only a limited menu of maybe 40 tests. Most important, Theranos tests cost less. Its prices are often a half to a quarter of what independent labs charge and a quarter to a tenth of what hospital labs bill, with still greater savings for expensive procedures. Such pricing represents a potential godsend for the uninsured, the insured with high deductibles, insurers, and taxpayers. 
The company's prices are set to never exceed half the Medicare reimbursement rate for each procedure, a fact that with widespread adoption could save the nation billions. The company also posts its prices online, a seemingly obvious service to customers, but one that is revolutionary in the notoriously opaque, arbitrary, and disingenuous world of contemporary healthcare pricing. Precisely how Theranos accomplishes all of these amazing feats is a trade secret. Holmes will only say, and this is more than she's ever said before, that her company uses the same fundamental chemical methods as existing labs do. Its advances relate to quote-unquote optimizing the chemistry and quote-unquote leveraging software to permit those conventional methods to work with tiny sample volumes. Oh, wow, that's a lot of malarkey. The article went on to talk about how they currently had one wellness center in Palo Alto and 20 of them in Phoenix, and that it plans to have Theranos wellness centers in a large percentage of the more than 8,000 Walgreens stores across all 50 states. Elizabeth told Roger that it was her plan to have a Theranos analyzer within five miles of nearly every American citizen and within one miles. Oh my God, Roseanne, one miles. Hello, wake up. One mile of those of us who dwell in cities. The then CEO of Walgreens, Greg Wasson, spoke to Roger for the Fortune article too, and he said that he hoped to have Theranos devices in their European pharmacy chain called Alliance Boots as well. Greg Wasson ended up retiring once the merger between Walgreens and Alliance Boots was complete, which was at the end of 2014, just six months after this article ran. So dreamers, here's a fun fact. A few years later in 2018, Greg Wasson and Wade Mickleon were charged by the Securities and Exchange Commission for misleading investors while they were the CEO and CFO, respectively, at Walgreens. Neither one of them denied or admitted to any wrongdoing, but they both agreed to pay $160,000 in fines, while Walgreens had to pay a whopping $34.5 million in fines. I mentioned in a past episode that as much of the blame for this whole clusterfuck that was Theranos can be blamed on Elizabeth and Sonny, I did say that Walgreens and Safeway, for that matter, chose to ignore many of the red flags because of their CVS FOMO, and they moved forward with their partnerships with Theranos without allowing their consultants to thoroughly vet the company, the blood analyzers, and their laboratories. So these guys were inflating their financial projections, just like Theranos was, and they got caught, and they got in trouble even though the both of them had moved on from Walgreens. Just as Theranos was looking to Walgreens for that much-needed lifeline, it appears as though Walgreens thought Theranos was going to be their lifeline too. Elizabeth also told Roger that Theranos had some deals in the works with three hospital groups that were looking to use Theranos blood analyzers across their hospital systems. The University of California at San Francisco Medical Center, Dignity Health Group located in 21 states, 
and Intermountain Healthcare's 22 hospitals across Utah and Idaho. This may very well have been in the early stages because of Theranos actually being able to have their blood analyzers go live in Walgreens finally, but we know it's just never going to happen, but talks may have been actually happening. People were interested. They were listening, but Elizabeth was never going to be able to deliver. She was probably hoping to buy enough time that would allow her to try and get the Edison or the Minilab working properly, but time was running out quickly because we all know at that point in time that the Fortune magazine article was published. Elizabeth was just about 16 months away from the fall of the very first domino. Okay, so check out this massive lie. The chief of orthopedic trauma at the Hospital for Special Surgery in Manhattan, his name is David Helfett. He said the first time he ever heard about the small blood analyzers that use only a drop of blood, he thought it was all snake oils and mirrors. But somebody at Theranos, presumably Elizabeth, provided Dr. Helfett with voluminous validation studies, and after he looked them over, he was sold and lobbied his hospital to jump on the Theranos bandwagon. He even told Fortune magazine that the data was real, not Theranos's interpretation of the data. So you see, this guy is a trauma surgeon, and even his first instinct was the whole Theranos one drop of blood to run dozens of tests was a bunch of hooey-fooey phony baloney. But after reading Elizabeth's entirely fake validation report o lies, he became a believer. What exactly was it that sold Dr. Helfett? Well, it's kind of in the same vein, no pun intended, as what Elizabeth had been trying to peddle all of these years. Fast diagnostics. This is what it describes according to the Fortune article. There's the old-fashioned way that germs are identified when someone comes in with an infection. Doctors have to figure out what kind of germs they're dealing with and what sort of antibiotic is needed to treat it. So they usually have to grow the bacteria in a petri dish and the whole process takes like three to five days. Well, in the meantime, the patient is stuck in the hospital, often taking antibiotics that don't work while they incubate antibiotic-resistant bacteria. According to the data that Dr. Helfett read in Theranos' validation report OLIES, Theranos can use DNA profiling for far less than the cost of conventional testing to identify a germ and its resistance profile in under four hours as opposed to the three to five days that it takes to grow the bacteria in a lab. Dr. Helfett's exact words to Fortune magazine was that it would change the way medicine is practiced. Roger Parloff did point out that Theranos did not invent this type of genetic testing, but rather it has invented a means of making it both time and cost efficient. So it's just lie after lie after lie 
just piling it on. The article also pointed out that since Theranos' blood analyzers take up to 100 times less space to do the same work that the bulky blood analyzers that are out there being used today do, it makes it possible for Theranos labs to be set up right inside of emergency rooms, operating rooms, military helicopters, ships, and submarines. You could even put up remote labs in the far reaches of the world, in the corners of the world, where technology normally can't get to, in refugee camps, or some random tent in the middle of Africa, as they are about the size of a computer CPU. But Elizabeth would not allow Fortin to publish pictures of the machine, nor would she even explain how the technology works. Trade secrets, right? (sighs) Trade lies. Trade lies. That's what they are. The article then goes on into how the existing lab industry is reacting to Theranos, trying to worm its way into their already established space. Critics in the blood diagnostic field are most concerned with the fact that Theranos is supposedly using this brand new groundbreaking technology that is supposed to run tests to get very specific and critical information from the results where the next steps is in deciding what to do, which can be the difference between life and death. And Theranos is doing all of this without having made any of their validation studies public by publishing them in their peer review journals. An oncologist who worked for Quest Diagnostics put it best. We don't know what Theranos is measuring, nor does anyone know how they're doing it or if they know why they're doing it. If you ask me, dreamers, that should have been Theranos' adage. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know why we're doing it. And hell, we don't even know why we are even here. Elizabeth had her comeback at the ready when she said that Theranos uses the same fundamental chemical methods as the tests that are already out there. Therefore, as her Lizzie logic dictates, that peer review publication of the validation studies are unnecessary and inappropriate. Then it describes how Theranos managed to circumvent regulatory bodies, or at least that's what they were trying to do. I think it had been made pretty clear to Elizabeth back when she was dealing with General Mattis and Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker in her attempts to get Theranos devices on the battlefield. And Roger tied it into the fact that Theranos did not yet have FDA approval because of its, quote, unusual regulatory structure. That's just a fancy way of saying deception and subterfuge. Bottom line, everybody else in the blood business has to utilize equipment that has been FDA approved. This is what Roger wrote. Most labs like Quest and LabCorp of America perform many of the routine tests using analyzers that they buy from medical device manufacturers like Siemens, Olympus, and Beckman Coulter. Before those manufacturers can sell such equipment, they must obtain U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval for the tests that those analyzers perform, a process that is in addition to the audits and proficiency tests required to win CMS certification for the lab itself. At the same time, for other procedures, conventional labs will devise their own lab-developed tests, which they do not have to clear by the FDA. While the FDA takes the position that they could require approval for lab-developed tests, 
For many years, it has said that it would forego that right in the exercise of its enforcement discretion. And dreamers, get your raincoats on because here comes Elizabeth with her next big shovel o bullshit. Roger Parloff wrote, Theranos, which does not buy any analyzers from third parties, is therefore in a unique position. While it would need FDA approval to sell its own analyzers to other labs, it doesn't do that. It uses its analyzers only in its own CMS-certified labs. All of its tests are therefore lab-developed tests, effectively exempting them from FDA oversight. That is an insanely crazy lie to be going around telling people we don't buy third-party analyzers. When Theranos' Palo Alto headquarters is full of them. It's the third-party analyzers that enabled Theranos to get their lab certified in the first place. Elizabeth then went on to tell Roger that nobody has any reason to question or criticize how Theranos operates since no other labs get FDA approval for their lab-developed tests. As she stated, quote, existing labs use thousands of assays that are neither FDA approved nor peer reviewed. Roger then pointed out that a lab oversight group called the American Clinical Lab Association is strongly against lab developed tests being required to get FDA approval and that the FDA, in fact, has little legal basis to even try. But then in the next breath, Elizabeth sort of contradicted herself by saying that Theranos was seeking FDA approval for one of their tests, even though there's nothing that obligates them to have to do so. She even showed Roger hundreds of pages of validation reports, alleged validation reports, that Theranos had submitted in order to get the FDA approval for that one test. And then Roger pointed out that Theranos is the first and only lab to have ever sought FDA approval for one of their lab-developed tests. What a crock of poo-poo. We all know why Elizabeth is even trying to get FDA approval for this one single test. It's so that she can begin to boast that Theranos tests are FDA approved. She'll just start saying that, like, as a general statement, everything is FDA approved. And then what she'll do is she'll insert a little asterisk next to that bold statement. And way down in the teeny tiniest nano font that Elizabeth can patent, she'll list that there's one test that has FDA approval. Just like she had been able to claim that their labs were certified. When the truth was, the lab was filled with blood analyzers manufactured by other companies, not Theranos. Just like she made the claim that Theranos tests are the most accurate on the market because a large percentage of the inaccuracies can be attributed to human error. Therefore, since Theranos' technology is fully automated, they can factor out human error altogether, thereby making their systems more accurate than everybody else's. Just like me back in 2014, when I listened to Serial and subsequently spent the next eight years debating Ednon's guilt or innocence. When I was finished, I began identifying in the fine print as a reporter detective attorney. It just goes to show you can go around and say or do or call yourself anything that you want as long as you put it in the fine print. Roger Parloff also pointed out in his article that when you do a side-by-side -side comparison of Theranos versus the competition, Theranos actually had a long way to go. 
Theranos' business model was lacking in many aspects, including test billing, customer service, sorting, regulatory compliance, and the transport of patient samples to the labs. He gave the example of Quest Diagnostics, which at the time, in 2014, had 45,000 employees, a fleet of 3,000 vehicles, 20 planes, 8 regional labs, 150 satellite labs, and 2,200 patient service centers. At its peak, Theranos had 800 employees, one lab, no planes, trains, or automobiles. But then Roger went on to highlight the reasons why everyone seems to think that Elizabeth and Theranos are the next big thing. The impressive board of directors and the high-powered attorney that drew Roger's attention to Theranos in the first place, David Boyce. It was his curiosity about why Boyce was representing a virtually unknown tech startup that got him interested in knowing more about Theranos and its magical, mystical founder, Madame Boss Elizabeth. General Mattis, he told Roger, she really wants to make a dent in the world. Since he left the military, he said, he longed to be around a leader and a visionary once again. Little did the general know at the time that he would have been better off just hanging out with himself. Then, Roger's article got into the eccentric side of Miss Elizabeth Holmes. As they spent the morning talking in one of the conference rooms at the headquarters, Elizabeth sat down holding a green drink that looked like pureed baby food. Turns out Elizabeth was and probably is vegan. Her drink was spinach, parsley, wheatgrass, celery, cucumbers, and whatever else is green. And that's apparently the only fuel that she needed to get through a 16-hour workday. She told Roger that when she examines a blood sample on a slide under a microscope, she can basically tell what a person's diet consisted of, whether that person eats a healthy, raw, vegan diet, or if that person eats burgers and fries. He said that her office was the closest thing to a Steve Jobs shrine that he'd ever seen. When Elizabeth and Roger went to dinner one evening, the restaurant that they went to prepared Elizabeth a custom meal that they do not serve or have on the menu, consisting of mixed greens with no salad dressing, whole wheat spaghetti cooked with no oil, topped only with tomatoes. Her meals sound about as bland as her relationship with Sunny. Roger admitted that if he were more cynical when meeting the very young, beautiful CEO, it would make sense why all these old dudes were so enamored with her. But then he would say after speaking to her that he found Elizabeth to be quiet and soft-spoken, engaging, courteous, simple, and modest. And all of that may be true, but then again, perhaps Roger Parloff didn't see himself falling in line with all the other old dudes. The article goes into much more detail about Theranos' ultimate goal to bring blood testing and the availability of it directly to the consumer, so each person would have access to understanding their own medical needs and they could track their own health in real time. But then she segued back into the colossal lies, telling Roger that Theranos has been doing work for major pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline, and are conducting clinical drug trials. And then she was quoted once again 
the whole thing about having to say goodbye to loved ones, blah, 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 and how she has this long-standing fear of needles, which had been at the heart of her inspiration in developing Theranos' microtechnology. Then the article went into Elizabeth's background, her upbringing, growing up, when she went to China, etc., etc. And then it ended with a quote from a then-aging Channing Robertson. I wish I wasn't 70 years old. I wish I was her age so I could be in on this. Because this is going to be a long, exciting, fascinating, exhilarating ride. Channing retired from Stanford to join Theranos' board of directors and remained with the company well into 2018, just before Theranos dissolved. After the fortune cover story on Theranos was published, Elizabeth and Theranos suddenly had a whirlwind of media attention. And one of the publications that became interested was Forbes, because Theranos had for the first time divulged their valuation publicly. And Forbes wanted to get some of their people on it to confirm that it was really worth $9 billion. I'm not really a finance person, and I haven't really stopped to try and figure out how and why Theranos ended up being worth so much money when the whole company was a sham. But I did a cursory look around the internet because I don't want to bore you or myself to death with all of this. But the most fundamental thing that I found is that there are three basic ways to determine a company's value, according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce website. There are asset-based methods, which sum up all of the investments in the company to determine the value of the business. There are earning value methods, which evaluate the company based on its ability to produce wealth in the future. And market value methods, which estimate what the company is worth based on similar businesses that have recently been sold. I suppose in some way, shape, or form, one or all of those things have an effect on what a company's shares are worth. Theranos was never publicly traded, so as the value went up, the value of the stocks rose. Elizabeth owned a 50% stake in the company, so that made her worth $4.5 billion. Once Forbes confirmed all of this, Elizabeth was named the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world in 2014. And on July 2nd, 2014, Forbes wrote an article, a short article about Elizabeth, and then two months later she was featured on the cover when she made their list of the richest people in the United States. She was listed at 110, and she was also named the youngest woman on the list. Then the awards started coming in. Elizabeth was the youngest person to be given the Horatio Alger Award, named after the 19th century author whose stories highlighted themes involving rags to riches. Elizabeth was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people. She was appointed as a member of the Harvard Medical School Board of Fellows. She was given the Under 30 Doers Award from Forbes. She was listed at number 73 in Forbes' 2015 World's Most Powerful Women. She was awarded an honorary doctorate of human letters from Pepperdine University. And she was named Business Person of the Year by Fortune magazine and was listed in their 40 Under 40 article. And all of this happened in 2015. 
By the way, Fortune magazine did eventually do a 180 on Elizabeth, and in 2016, they would name her as one of the 19 most disappointing leaders in the world. And because I found that there were so many other interesting scumbags out there aside from Elizabeth and Sonny for that matter, though he didn't experience the same public outcry and ridicule that Elizabeth did in the wake of Theranos' fall, we do know that in the hearts and minds of the tens of California Dreaming listeners out there, that he will always be that one special slime ball to all of us. I do want to share some of the disappointments listed in the Fortune article with you, but I'll do it after this episode's outro. So the ones of you out there who really want to get on with your lives with this can do so and not have to be bothered with having to listen to me drone on and on about something that has nothing to do with Theranos. Anyway, with all of the media energy, it worked to become an integral part of the myth that became Elizabeth Holmes. Her meteoric rise was also a matter of good timing because the world was ready to see a rise in women breaking into the male-dominated tech industry. Carrie Rue referenced Marissa Mayer, the former president and CEO of Yahoo from 2012 to the beginning of 2017. And by the way, she's on the disappointment list also. And Sheryl Sandberg, who became Facebook's COO in 2008, which is a position that she still holds today. And she had become the first woman to serve on Facebook's board of directors. She is not on the disappointment list. But what set Elizabeth apart is that Mayer and Sandberg came into already well-established tech companies, whereas Elizabeth had actually created her own from the ground up. This made Elizabeth the very first female billionaire to have founded her own company in Silicon Valley ever. What was also different about Elizabeth was the fact that unlike other billionaire tech entrepreneurs out there, she kind of parlayed the growing interest in her into a newfound fame, a celebrity style type of fame. She was showing up everywhere all of a sudden. And John Kerry said in his book that other tech founders and CEOs do stuff and show up for things too. But he said it wasn't nearly as much as Elizabeth was. But you know, when I read that, I went and Googled Mark Zuckerberg black tie events. And there are many images of him making public appearances, many of them before Congress. But still, he is pictured at numerous red carpet events, standing at a lectern, doing the obligatory handshake pose. But perhaps Zuck just isn't as interesting to the media. He's kind of goofy and boring. I mean, his dog is pretty interesting. He has one of those Hungarian sheepdogs that sort of looks like a rope mop. I'd follow that on Instagram. Elizabeth just had this magnetism about her, which is another reason why she was able to do what she did. She should have been an influencer or a content creator or a brand ambassador, whatever it is these kids are doing these days. I think she would have made a killing doing that. Okay, so get this. As Elizabeth's fame grew, so did the need for the security detail. Understandable, right? Extremely wealthy people have to have bodyguards. 
Her team grew to 20 deep. I mentioned in a previous episode that she was driven around in a black Audi with no license plates and her code name was Eagle One. I don't think I mentioned the Eagle One thing earlier, but yeah, that was her code name. <laughs> and guess what Sunny's code name was? Eagle Two. And just for fun, I thought you might find this to be sort of hilarious. When you look up Eagle 2 on the Urban Dictionary, it defines Eagle 2 as the following. An ingenious codename for an ugly or unattractive person. Someone that you have no desire to have sex with. Talk about nailing it, right? So the character Andy, portrayed by the lovable Chris Pratt, is quoted as saying this on one of the episodes. From now on, we'll be using code names. You can address me as Eagle One. And code name, been there, done that. April is currently doing that. Donna, happened once in a dream. Chris, code name, if I had to pick a dude. Ben is Eagle Two. Anyway, Elizabeth had her own personal chef that apparently specialized in making her green potion that she drank every day. She only flew by private jet, though I don't think she ever leveled up to actually owning her own. And Elizabeth's signature move that drew the masses in was the manner in which she pulled at the heartstrings with her stirring story of losing her uncle and working towards never having to say goodbye too soon. And I tell you, dreamers, Saying goodbye to ever having to say that ever again can't happen too soon. She gave the dead uncle speech in the fall of 2013 to an audience of Theranos employees who had gathered to witness Her Highness speak in the royal refectory to take in her stirring oration. But just a couple of months after Elizabeth graced the cover of Fortune magazine on September 12, 2014, she gave the dead uncle speech publicly for the first time at a TED Med talk. But you know, Elizabeth is always wearing her liar liar pants, so we have to ask, how much of that story is actually true? I've questioned it in the past, but we've come to find out that mm, not so much truth in it. For starters, she did have an uncle, so one point for Lizzie. He did have skin cancer that did eventually spread to his brain and he died 18 months earlier in March of 2013. Now, in the beginning of all this, I was under the impression that the dead uncle happened earlier in Elizabeth's life and served as an inspiration to work in the field of diagnostics. As it turns out, he didn't die until a decade after Theranos was founded. And when he did, Elizabeth saw an opportunity to capitalize on it, while at the same time being able to bring a very personal story into her vision and her mission. Now, to be clear, I'm not accusing Elizabeth of exploiting a family tragedy here. That would actually be her own family that would be making that assertion. Not her mom and dad, but rather her extended family. They've since come forward and confirmed that Elizabeth was not close to this particular uncle. And they've said, knowing what they know about how distant their relationship truly was, 
The fact that she was using his death to advance her company was bogus and disingenuous. This is what Elizabeth said at the TED Med talk. If you want to skip it, then fast forward 16 minutes. But this will be the actual audio from the YouTube video because it's not a loud talk. It's very calm and it's pretty relaxing to listen to, kind of boring, but it's interesting to listen to it now after everything that's happened since she actually gave that speech. But like I said, if you don't want to listen to it or you already have listened to it, you can go ahead and fast forward 16 minutes from this point. I believe the individual is the answer to the challenges of healthcare. But we can't engage the individual in changing outcomes unless individuals have access to the information they need to do so. The right to protect the health and well-being of every person, of those we love, is a basic human right. A right defined in the United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Yet in the United States today, healthcare is the leading cause of bankruptcy. And the lack of it, the leading cause of the suffering associated with finding out too late in the disease progression process that someone you love is really, really sick. I grew up spending summers and the holidays with my uncle. I remember his love of crossword puzzles and trying to teach us to play football. I remember how much he loved the beach. I remember how much I loved him. He was diagnosed one day with skin cancer, which all of a sudden was brain cancer, and in his bones. He didn't live to see his son grow up, and I never got to say goodbye. We define diagnosis today as the determination of the presence of disease from its signs and symptoms. Yet diseases often begin so much earlier than when symptoms first appear. We see a world in which every person has access to actionable health information at the time it matters. A world in which no one ever has to say, if only I'd known sooner. 
a world in which no one ever has to say goodbye too soon. Technology can and is transforming our world and many policy issues along with it. Today, laboratory information drives 70 to 80% of clinical decisions. Yet until a few months ago, people in many states couldn't even get copies of their own lab results for tests ordered for them by their physicians, even if they paid for it. And today, I can go buy a deadly exotic animal, a venomous viper, a military truck or armored vehicle. I can buy a tank, which a quick search of the internet has informed me, and I quote, is generally available for any budget or situation. <laughs> but I can't order a blood-based pregnancy test or an allergy test because that could be dangerous. God forbid I stop eating peanuts. A woman trying to conceive a child can't order a fertility test. And someone worried about her or a partner's risk of a sexually transmitted infection can't order an STI test. And there's 110 million cases of STIs in the US today, all of which are treatable. When individuals have access to the information about their bodies, they can begin to change outcomes. Type 2 diabetes alone, which drives 20% of our healthcare costs, can be reversed through changes in lifestyle, in diet, in exercise. Yet today, there's 80 million Americans who are pre-diabetic, and 90% of them don't know that they are. Another 15% of our healthcare costs is associated just with the choice an individual makes to be compliant with the prescriptions written for them by their physician. But engagement comes with knowledge, and knowledge comes with access. My own life's work in building Theranos is to redefine the paradigm of diagnosis away from one in which people have to present with a symptom in order to get access to information about their bodies. To one in which every person, no matter how much money they have or where they live, has access to actionable health information at the time it matters. Over the course of the last 11 years, we've made it possible to run any laboratory test for anywhere from 50 to 90% off of Medicare reimbursement rates. We've made it possible to run comprehensive laboratory tests from a tiny sample or a few drops of blood 
that could be taken from a finger. And we've made it possible to eliminate the tubes and tubes of blood that traditionally have to be drawn from an arm and replaced it with the nanotainer. We've made it possible for information to be accessible at the time and place that matters, closest to where people live and closest to where they see their physicians. And we've made it possible for actionable information to be accessible by creating a decentralized infrastructure with the oversight and analytics of a centralized pathology framework. Today, 40 to 60% of people are not compliant with the requisition from a physician to go get a lab test done. They're not compliant because they can't afford it. Even if they're insured, deductibles increasingly are so high that people can't pay the few hundred dollars out of pocket to get a test done. They're not compliant because they're scared of needles. It's one of the basic human fears right up there with fear of spiders and fear of heights. They're not compliant because of inaccessibility to the locations they'd need to go to during times they'd often have to take off from work to be able to get a test done. And they can't do that. We see a world in which every person knows how much a test they're paying for is going to cost them before they get that test done. Every time. I remember listening to a woman who came to one of our wellness centers to get tested. She talked about a conversation with her physician in which she'd raised her concerns about risk of hereditary diseases that had afflicted her family. And she asked to get a series of tests done. The physician said to her, well, insurance isn't going to cover this. Do you still want to do it? And she said, well, yeah, how much does it cost? Physician didn't know. What she could figure out was that it would likely cost her a few thousand dollars to get these tests done. Tests for which she was not symptomatic for those conditions yet. And she couldn't afford it. People will go broke if they have to spend thousands of dollars out of pocket in order to get the test done they need to begin to understand their risk of a condition before they develop it. I'll remember all my life the face of a pregnant woman who showed up at one of our locations and she'd been turned away from the other places she'd gone because she couldn't afford the ability to do a test. And she was so scared that she was going to be turned away here too. When she saw the cost of her tests would be a little more than the cost of a meal, the gratitude on her face struck my heart. No person should have to go through 
that fear. We see a world in which no one has to go through the pain of traditional phlebotomy. I remember reading an email from the father of a little girl. He talked about taking her to the hospital and watching as they stuck her soft tissue again and again in the search for what he called the tiny invisible vein. I remember watching elderly people whose veins collapse as they age, having to get blood drawn from their hand, which can cause so much suffering. And I remember talking to so many cancer patients who will tell you they can take the treatments and they can take the radiation and they can take the visits, but the fear and bruising and transfusions associated with all the blood that needs to be collected in order for them to get care breaks them and those who love and care for them down. By making the cost of testing so low that any combination of tests can be run for the same cost that those tests would have cost individually before, it becomes possible to engage individuals in the testing process in such a way in which they get the information they need at the time it matters. We see a world in which the interaction with a physician becomes actionable because people can be tested at the time and frequency that matters so that clinicians and individuals can begin to understand not just where they are, but where they're headed. And the typical clinician visit will change from one in which today is generally characterized by me seeing my doctor, for example. Doc says, Elizabeth, haven't seen you for a year. Go get a test done. I go, let's say, do a routine set of labs. Doc calls me, says, ran a cell blood count. Your hemoglobin was really low. I'm going to put you on this therapy. Come back in, do another set of labs so that I can figure out why that initial test was out of range. But in order to do that, I need more tubes of blood to be able to triage the condition. So I go, and this three office visit, two lab, one unnecessary prescription process can be consolidated into a single lab that can be accessible before I see my clinician. Because any test can be run from a tiny sample for less cost than any one of them would have cost before. We see a world in which people get access to laboratory information late at night, on a weekend, early in the morning, in rural areas. And in establishing decentralized and distributed testing frameworks, a world in which decentralized care begins to become possible in developing economies.
This future is beginning now. But engagement begins with the individual. And if I had one wish standing here with all of you, it would be that today, just for a minute, you think about the fact that we have this right, a human right, to engage with information about ourselves, about our bodies, and for those that we love to engage with information about themselves. And when we do that, we will change our lives. And the lives of those we love will change. And we'll begin to change our healthcare system and our world. In her TED Med talk, Elizabeth did say one thing that was true, sort of. She called it a basic human fear, and that is a fear of needles. And it does come in in many surveys as a top 10 phobia amongst people. Starting from the top, the first is social phobias, the fear of social situations. Next is arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Ophidiophobia, the fear of snakes. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Aerophobia, the fear of flying. Cynophobia, the fear of dogs. Astrophobia, the fear of thunder and lightning. Trypanophobia, the fear of injections and needles. Agoraphobia, the fear of crowds or situations that might be difficult to escape and misophobia, and excessive fear of germs or dirt. I said what Elizabeth said was sort of true because the article I read differentiated between phobias and fears. Elizabeth called it a fear, but being afraid of needles is listed as a phobia. People who have fear don't necessarily have a phobia. The top 10 fears are becoming seriously ill, not having enough money for the future, death, terrorist attacks, high medical bills, public speaking, natural disasters, crime, war, and pollution. And just in case anybody thinks any of those phobias are absurd or unreasonable, I looked up a list of irrational fears, and here are some of them. Leaving your house without pants, Getting into a crowded elevator, though perhaps things have changed in the age of COVID. Speaking in elevators. Losing a limb when trying to rush into a subway as the doors are closing. Every human social interaction ever. Balloons and or popping balloons. Being exposed for watching explicit material and or forgetting to close out your explicit content tabs. The fear of mold the fear of throwing things away that you really don't need, clowns, something that's going to snatch you from under the bed or while you're using the toilet, poking your eye out on basically anything your parents yelled at you about poking your eye out on, getting a paper cut on your eyeball, 
and then double, triple, and quadruple checking that you're not sexting the wrong person. Those are considered irrational fears. I do have the spider phobia, arachnophobia. I also have a fear of a lot of bugs and flying insects and things. I just hate them. So I'm glad to know that that's basically normal. Moving on, I want to talk to you about a gentleman we've talked about before. His name is Patrick O'Neill. If you remember a few episodes back, I briefly discussed Patrick. He was the one at the advertising firm Shiat Day who became an Elizabeth superfan from the word go. He was basically the person behind that transformation of Elizabeth's overall image and really took her public profile to another level. She ended up luring him away from Shiat Day where he had been for more than seven and a half years. And in the end, he would stay at Theranos for a total of two years and 10 months. Patrick does have Theranos listed on his LinkedIn profile because I do think he did some pretty amazing work for Elizabeth when she hired him on as her creative director. So I think he has every right to list his work that he should be very proud of. Despite the fact that Theranos was the fakiest faker ever. When you saw Elizabeth on the cover of Fortune magazine, Patrick worked directly with their photographer to come up with the image that you are all pretty familiar with. Her hair tied loosely back. She's wearing the black turtleneck. She has her big, round, piercing eyes staring straight at you. She has dark but minimal eyeliner on the top lid, possibly mascara, and some reddish lipstick. It's not bright red. It's more on the natural side of a dark, muted, but metallic red. I would even say maybe it's the color of clay. Elizabeth herself had become key to Theranos's marketing strategy. She came with a story that just grabbed you, and everyone suddenly wanted to sip the Kool-Aid. She became an icon, an idol, particularly to other young women who aspired to be in the biomedical field. Brilliant young women who looked up to Elizabeth really as a trailblazer. That's another sad aspect of the story, a regrettable aspect, the letdown. We know at least one person who saw Elizabeth as a mentor and a leader. That young girl from an immigrant family who would graduate from Berkeley with two degrees, who believed being hired by Elizabeth and given the opportunity to work at Theranos was a dream come true. That would be Erica Chung. Even though Elizabeth would turn out to be nothing close to what any of these women who admired her would go on to become. She gave each one of them a unique lesson that no college professor would have ever been able to. Just because somebody is bigger, stronger, harder, louder, or richer doesn't mean that they're right and you're wrong. It doesn't mean that you have to feel bad or guilty for standing up for yourself or intimidated or afraid to point out when you see something untoward or 
You don't have to be made to feel stupid or less than or insignificant when somebody tries to convince you that you just don't get it. That's what people mean when we tell each other to believe in ourselves. Elizabeth not only was a huge letdown and a fail, she went around and attempted to crush anybody who tried to point it out. She did that. It's one thing to tear people down. It's quite another when women tear each other down. Being able to work for Elizabeth and Theranos was like being at Disneyland every single day for Patrick. And the only reason I make that analogy specifically is because that's what I pictured in my mind when I read a line in Bad Blood that stated, Patrick was one of her biggest believers. He had no knowledge of the shenanigans going on in the lab and didn't pretend to understand any of the science of blood testing. But as far as he was concerned, the fairy tale was real. I just imagined children going to Disneyland for the first time and seeing everything that they've seen in all the movies in real life right before their eyes. All the fairy tales that have just come true. Theranos was Patrick's Disneyland. In the Hulu series, whenever anyone is hanging out at the headquarters, the whole thing just looks really nauseating to me with all the glass rooms. I assume that's because Elizabeth and Sonny and their hench people have to have a 360 degree view of everything to make sure that nothing punishable by death is going on. Can you imagine working in an environment like that? I mean, I'm sure maybe some of you have, and there are cameras everywhere nowadays, which are a safety and security tool as well as a deterrent. But working in glass rooms feels like working in an aquarium. All of these people are professional, educated, skilled, and knowledgeable individuals that Theranos has on their staff. But you know, they're average people with average lives. They thought they'd be working from nine to five, but hell, they pay the price. At work, they want to be left alone and then go home, but it must always feel like they're in the twilight zone because they always feel like somebody's watching them and they have no privacy. Elizabeth had this habit of surrounding herself with quotes that inspired her. Quotes from Steve Jobs, Michael Jordan, Theodore Roosevelt, among others. But the one that you see on prominent display on the Hulu series, the one from Jedi Master Yoda, it's do or do not, there is no try. That was a quote that Patrick introduced Elizabeth to and it was his idea to paint it in bold black letters at the entrance of the headquarters. Obviously, Elizabeth approved of the idea because it happened. I don't know. I would have been more impressed if Elizabeth had ever come up with her own quotables. Her lifting ideas from other brilliant people or Jedi masters for that matter. It's getting kind of old to me. Early on, I said I don't think Elizabeth ever actually accomplished much of anything that was of real and true substance or significance. And 
when you think about it, that's probably because she was as fictional as every princess at Disneyland, as every Jedi in a galaxy far, far away. Theranos' staff was also continuing to grow. By the time the Fortune and Forbes articles published, Elizabeth had about 500 employees, and her staff was only going to get larger, so they were going to have to move out of the old Facebook building and into something bigger and, of course, better. Patrick was the one who was going to be designing the interior of the building. And if you have a chance to look at some of the pictures online, it's located at 1701 Page Mill Road in the Stanford Research Park. Everything in it, the whole design is based on a circular theme. And even though like Apple's iconic $5 billion Apple Park nicknamed The Ring didn't open until April of 2017. It did take eight years to build, and it was most certainly a product of Steve Jobs' imagination, though he never lived to see it house one single Apple employee. It's yet another thing that Elizabeth may have been inspired by. The new headquarters wasn't going to be circular on the outside, but the motif on the inside definitely was, and personally, I like it. It's worth today, and this wasn't too long ago, but at the time, then and now, it's about hovering around $26 million, so just a drop in the bucket compared to Apple Park. Despite the main geometric shape of everything being circular or curved, Elizabeth's office had to be inspired by the most important office in the country, which is the Oval Office. I don't think her office itself was oval in shape, but I wasn't able to confirm that. But what Patrick did was, is he had a desk custom made for her. It was very deep, like the president's desk, but it was rounded on the edges. And like the oval office, he placed a couple of sofas and armchairs in front of the desk and the windows in her office were bulletproof. In addition to prepping Elizabeth's style and image and doing her interior decorating, Patrick also spearheaded the campaign to fast-track the opening of 40 Theranos Wellness Centers in Phoenix. He also hired Academy Award-winning documentarian Errol Morris to produce Theranos' commercials that were going to air in the Phoenix marketplace. Elizabeth starred in one of the commercials. But the feel of it was more like her staring at you from your TV or your streaming device while she put you into a trance with that blinkless, wide-eyed stare. And with that, Phoenicians began flocking to Walgreens in zombie-like states to get their fingers pricked. And I did look that up, and from all that I could tell, people from Phoenix do call themselves Phoenicians. If I'm wrong, then correct me, but I found it on the internet, so you know what they say. Patrick's marketing was aimed at mothers who he believed to be the household decision makers when it came to family health and wellness, so he picked shows that had a large female audience in primetime. Another huge theme that the commercials focused on was the needle phobia 
and the promise that Theranos blood tests only required one single droplet of blood taken painlessly from the tip of your finger. But get this, a couple of weeks after the ad started to air in Phoenix, it had to be taken down off the air because a physician in the area made a complaint that several of his own patients who he sent to Walgreens for blood tests reported back that they did not get the finger stick test that had been promised, but rather they had to give blood the traditional way through venipuncture. It was a huge letdown for Patrick because, you know, you work on these concepts and you bring them to life. You put everything into your work only to be forced to take it down. But he was very well aware that this was a delicate topic to talk to Elizabeth about. So he didn't make a big stink over it. But, you know, Patrick tried doing his due diligence by checking in with Sonny and asking him about the number of blood tests that were finger stick versus the tests that were venous draws. Sonny just sort of hemmed and hawed around it, did a little song and dance, and then he just sort of flounced away from the subject altogether. So in late October of 2014, Elizabeth was doing her second favorite thing in the whole wide world after telling lies, telling lies, telling sweet little but not really sweet and not really little lies. Oh no, she can't disguise until she can at her annual Halloween party, that is, which she held outdoors on some basketball courts adjacent to the Theranos headquarters. By the way, the wind is blowing right now at about 40 or 50 miles an hour. So if you hear any background noise, I'm sorry, I just can't help it. There is a big tree outside my window. Anyway, when it came to party throwing, Elizabeth was almost better at it than lie throwing. She dressed up as a queen, apropos to the theme of this entire series as to how Queen Elizabeth came to view herself as royalty. And because of the media energy... That's basically what she had become in the kingdom of Silicon. As for Sonny, well, we'll just call him the Baron of Buffoonery. Actually, he dressed up as an Arab sheik. The only drawback with that costume is that the kafia, I think that's how it's pronounced, doesn't cover his face. Otherwise, it would be perfect if it did. The Shat Pack, the Therabros, they went as various characters from Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movie, and Daniel Young dressed up as Brian Cranston's character in Breaking Bad. And when it came to events like this, it was pretty well known that Elizabeth always partied like it was the end of the world as she knew it, which is probably a good thing because I think deep down, she did know it. Another person who, like Elizabeth, dressed according to how he was feeling about Theranos, it was Adam Rosendorf, and he showed up as a zombie. Remember, he was Theranos' lab director who had been hired back in 2013. So at the time of this monster mash, he'd been there for more than a year. He had desperately hung on to his faith in Theranos' goal of changing the world. He had his misgivings every step of the way, 
But as 2014 was winding down, all of his hopes were dashed. He knew that Elizabeth and Sonny were essentially playing a game of Russian roulette. It was only going to be a matter of time before the cylinder landed on that one bullet that was going to kill somebody. They were setting themselves up to make a lot of people mad. People who sank money into the company and people who were getting blood tests done. Sometimes they were out there getting those blood tests looking for some very serious conditions and diseases. Let's take a hypothetical situation. Say that there's this person who suddenly is informed that an intimate partner had HIV. This person wants to get tested right away, and they're told that the quickest, easiest, and cheapest way to find out is to have a blood test taken at the local wellness center in Walgreens. So this patient goes there, and an HIV test is something that can be done using a finger prick or an oral swabbing, but drawing blood from a vein can bring about test results much sooner than the first two methods, and there are home do-it-yourself HIV tests, so going to a wellness center doesn't have to be the initial option. But if that person does take the at-home tests and it comes up positive, then they're going to want to go to their doctor and the doctor is most likely going to order more tests. And that might be when the patient is sent to Walgreens. When the sample is sent to Theranos Labs for testing, we know good and well by now that the results from anything that Theranos tests could go in any direction but accurate. The blood could come up negative for the HIV antigens. It could come up positive. It could turn out the Edison thinks the blood is from an already dead person. What if the person was, according to Theranos' faulty test results, HIV positive? But the truth was, is that the person wasn't HIV positive. So now, they have to start living their lives with that information. And on the flip side of that, what if a person tests negative, but in reality, that person is actually HIV positive? They're going to be carrying on with their normal lives, not realizing that they have a potentially deadly infectious disease that they could pass on to someone else. Since the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, it's been estimated that anywhere between 27 to 48 million people globally have died of HIV, and another 30 to 45 million are living with it, and many don't even know that they have it. When I gave birth in 1999, I lost copious amounts of blood during the C-section, and I'm sorry if this is TMI. I ended up needing to stay hospitalized until my blood tested satisfactorily enough for me to go home. I was offered a blood transfusion, but I was told that there was a 1 in 4,000 chance of contracting hepatitis C, and there was a 1 in 30,000 chance of contracting HIV. Today, those chances are, are much, much more slim than they were back then. I turned down the blood transfusion and I ended up staying in the hospital for six days with Evelyn until 
my blood regenerated enough for me to be discharged. Just imagine if Theranos was going around testing donated blood to be used for transfusions. It could have been as disastrous as those who were given HIV-infected blood transfusions, which had begun being documented back to 1982. So when you really, really think about it, Theranos' technology was actually taking us backwards in time. We might as well have re-nicknamed the Edison the DeLorean. That's how ridiculous this was getting and how dangerous it was becoming. As 2014 was coming to an end, so was Adam's ability to keep on keeping on with Theranos' gobbledygook. So a few weeks before the Halloween party, he began forwarding dozens and dozens of the emails that he had sent to both Elizabeth and Sonny over the course of the past year and a half. And he sent them to himself to a personal Gmail account. He knew that this was a huge risk that he was taking. It's in his contract that he can't do this sort of stuff. And he knew that Theranos watched everything. But his desire to keep track of and have a record of all of the concerns that he had raised with the two of them overrode any fears of repercussions that he might have had to face if anyone were to find out what he had done. He'd even spoken to an attorney who is best known for representing whistleblowers. He did forward one of the emails to this attorney that he was consulting, but it really wasn't that easy to convey how much of a dumpster fire Theranos Labs had become if there was little to no context around it, and if the attorney didn't have a grasp on how labs are supposed to be operating. In addition to that, it was really going to be hard to prove anything because of the way Theranos had been siloing all of their departments. Back to the party, the Halloween party. Daniel Young, he got pretty intoxicated. And when he does that, his usual reclusive and introverted self turns into like the life of the party but even though he was being pretty friendly and chatty adam knew that he really couldn't talk to him because in essence daniel young was eagle three so they pretty much just small talked about anything other than theranos's corruptiness the party began to thin out so a handful of the hanger-ons decided to migrate over to a local bar to continue the festivities, and Adam and Daniel went along too. At the bar, Adam noticed one of the guys who worked over in the research and development department. His name was Curtis Schneider. He was a brilliant scientist with a PhD in organic chemistry, and he had a passion for fly fishing, of all things. And for those of us who are dummies when it comes to chemistry, the difference between organic and inorganic chemistry is that organic compounds always contain carbon, while most inorganic compounds do not contain carbon, and that is as far as that I am willing to look into that right now. Y'all are on your own if you must know more, because if I talk about this, I'm going to bore all of us to death. According to Bad Blood, the conversation eventually turned towards work. Curtis told Adam about a conference call earlier in the day with officials from the FDA. 
Theranos was trying to get the agency to approve some of its proprietary blood tests. During the call, one of the agency's reviewers voiced a dissenting view about Theranos' submission, but he was silenced by his colleagues. Curtis found it odd. There might be nothing to it, Adam thought, but the story added to his mounting unease. He told Curtis about the lab's quality control data and how it was being kept from him, and he confided something else. The company was cheating on proficiency tests. In case Curtis hadn't registered the implication of what he had just said, he spelled it out. Theranos was breaking the law. When he looked up, Adam saw that Daniel Young was staring at them from across the bar, and his face was as white as a ghost's. And we will find out what happens after this in the next episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this. And if you do want to stick around a little bit longer after this outro, I'm going to tell you about a couple of the other shady tricksters and fraudsters, along with Elizabeth, on that most disappointing leaders in the world from back in 2016. Don't forget to like California Dreaming on Facebook and join the discussion group. Follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you need more to listen to while you wait for the next episode, you can join Patreon starting at just $1 a month, and that will unlock most of the content on there for you. Thank you all again. Don't forget to stay tuned if you want to hear the disappointment list. We will be back shortly with the next installment of the series. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. Okay, so if you're still here, I wanted to quickly tell you about the Fortune magazine article that I found that listed Elizabeth as one of the world's most disappointing leaders in 2016. And this article came out just five months after John Carreyrou exposed her and Theranos for being a big old fraudy fraudster. I thought you might be interested in the company that Elizabeth found herself in as she began her dizzying downfall. The list was compiled by a collection of Fortune magazine editors. I checked and it seems like this isn't something that they do annually. And since this particular list goes back to 2016, I'll provide some updates to see if anybody is in some federal prison somewhere pounding license plates making two cents an hour. And I'll just pick a couple to tell you about so that we all can get on with our lives. Okay, so on the list, one of them was the governor of Michigan, Rick Schneider, former governor. Governor Schneider and his administration didn't just cause the city of Flint, Michigan, not just the state of Michigan, but he caused the whole damn country to become pretty super outraged at him when he tried some sort of money-saving scheme that ended up sending the residents of Flint water that was tainted with lead. That lead-contaminated water caused illnesses in many residents, mostly the youngest ones, to become very ill and suffer brain damage as a result. 
According to the magazine, Schneider was called to testify before Congress. This was a guy who had based his gubernatorial campaign on his competence as a politician, yet he told Congress that what happened in Flint with the water supply was the most humbling experience of his life, right before he tried shifting the blame onto everyone and everything else except for himself. He said that this whole thing was a government failure, which I don't exactly understand that logic considering as governor, he's part of the government, sort of written into his title, but whatever. He blamed the Environmental Protection Agency by calling their regulations on the allowable amounts of lead in public water systems dumb and dangerous. In January of 2021, Snyder was charged along with seven others for their roles in the Flint water scandal. In all, they are facing 42 counts ranging from misconduct in office to involuntary manslaughter. The lead-contaminated water had been linked to at least a dozen deaths, along with 80 others who were sick with Legionnaire's disease, which is a type of pneumonia. The water became contaminated because water flowing through the old pipes made out of lead were causing the residents to become poisoned. Snyder himself was facing two counts of willful neglect, which are misdemeanors, and he faced a maximum of one year in prison and a $1,000 fine. Snyder's former director of communications was charged with one count of perjury and faces a maximum of 15 years in prison. Snyder's former senior manager and advisor is charged with perjury, carries a maximum of 15 years, misconduct in office, which carries five years and or a $10,000 fine, and obstruction of justice, which carries a maximum of 20 years and or a $10,000 fine. The former city manager is facing four counts of misconduct in office and is facing a maximum of five years and or $10,000 in fines. The former director of the Flint Public Works is charged with two counts of willful neglect of duty, which carries a maximum of one year and or $1,000 fine. The former Flint emergency manager is facing three counts of misconduct in office with a maximum of five years and or $10,000 fine. The former director of the Department of Health and Human Services is facing nine counts of involuntary manslaughter, which carries a maximum of 15 years each or a $7,500 fine, and one count of willful neglect of duty, maximum of one year and or a $10,000 fine. The only two women of the bunch that are charged are the current early childhood health section manager. She's charged with two counts of misconduct in office, which carries a maximum of five years and or a $10,000 fine, and one count of willful neglect of duty, and that's one year and or a $1,000 fine. And the most charges, including the most serious ones, have been levied against the former chief medical executive with the Department of Health and Human Services. She's facing nine counts of involuntary manslaughter, two counts of misconduct in office, and one count of willful neglect of duty. The state of Michigan has already agreed to pay $600 million to the residents of Flint. The cases have yet to be adjudicated. Another interesting person on the list is Martin Winterkorn. He's the former chairman of Volkswagen. So Winterkorn was in charge of VW when there was that disastrous scandal 
where company engineers installed software that manipulated emissions on about 11 million diesel vehicles. Wintercorn had insisted that he had no idea that there was any wrongdoing, but many were like, yeah, no, you knew. Because he was known for being one of those pesky micromanagery types, and the company itself had stated at some point in the later stages of the software manipulation that Wintercorn was sent a warning that there was potentially something untoward going on with the emission software. The article also said that VW had been known for their ruthless culture, so you can infer that their leadership would probably be on the same page as that philosophy. Wintercorn had been very vocal about wanting VW to become the world's largest automobile manufacturer. Wintercorn was charged in the United States on May 3rd of 2018 with fraud and conspiracy by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. The indictment references a conference in Wolfsburg, Germany, where Wintercorn was briefed on and approved the continued concealment of the software from U.S. regulators. And notes emails also from 2015 from VW's then compliance liaison, Oliver Schmidt, who pled guilty in the case and received a sentence of seven years in prison. Over in Germany, Wintercorn was charged on April 15, 2019 of fraud, violating laws prohibiting unfair competition and defalcation, which is like causing bankruptcy. But a year later, it was reported that the judge overseeing his case said that Wintercorn is likely to walk free and he'll be able to keep his millions of dollars in bonuses. However, in June of 2021, it was reported that Wintercorn, along with some other top VW executives, should be made to pay Volkswagen 10 million euros in compensation. Wintercorn is currently wanted in the United States. He is considered a fugitive from justice. He is wanted for conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, conspiracy to violate the Clean Air Act, and three counts of wire fraud. Now, this next guy is a pretty big dirtbag. His name is Martin Shikrelli. Apparently, if you honestly ask this guy who's the smartest person in the room, he'll tell you that it's him, and he'll tell you that he's smarter than you. According to the Fortune article, he was so brilliant that he came up with a strategy to buy cheap drugs and sell them at hugely astronomical price increases and basically become the most villainous pharma executive ever, which Shikrelli was apparently very proud of. Sounds like this would have been a swipe right for Elizabeth, right? Well, this guy's monkey business caught the searing attention of basically the entire pharma industry and he ended up getting himself in some big, big trouble. He insisted that he was innocent. Actually, this could probably be an episode in and of itself. So what had happened was, back in August of 2015, Shikrelli's company acquired Daraprim, Daraprim from a pharmacy company called Impax. It's a medication that the FDA approved in 1953. And he bought this drug, or the rights to sell it, for $55 million. 
It was mostly used as an anti-malarial and anti-parasitic to be used coupled with other drugs to treat patients with toxoplasmosis. Sorry, this is getting really tongue twisty. But that's a disease caused by an infection from a parasite. And it's one of the most common in the world. Caused by eating undercooked contaminated meat, exposure to infected cat feces, or from mother to child during pregnancy and when giving birth. The patent for the drug had expired and there was no generic. So when Shikrelli's company acquired the drug from Impacts, the deal also had the stipulation that they were to remove the drug from all wholesalers and pharmacies. So what Impacts did was a couple of months before the sale, they began strictly controlling the distribution of it. When Turning, which was Shikrelli's company, acquired the drug, they kept up with the strategy when it came to pricing during times of limited competition. The only reason to do this would be to drastically raise the price of the drug. So in September of that year, pretty much overnight, the price of Daraprim went up from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill. According to my go-to math guy, Tony S. on Facebook, that's a 5,456% increase. That had actually turned into a little bit of a discussion, but there were a couple of mathers in the group, math people, math teachers, who concurred that Tony's calculation was correct. So I want to say thank you to everyone who hashed that out for me so I didn't have to do it. So anyway, consumers were pretty upset with this price hike, and Shikrelli was heavily criticized. He tried to justify the price, saying that patient copays would actually be lower, that most of them would get the drug at no cost, that his pharmaceutical company was expanding its free drug program, and that they were selling half of their drugs for $1. He defended the price hike by saying this brilliant quote. If there was a company that was selling an Aston Martin at the price of a bicycle, and we buy that company, and we ask to charge Toyota prices, I don't think that that should be a crime. This guy is giving Sonny Balwani a run for his douchebag money, right? Well, then Shikrelli, after all the criticism, he said that he would lower the price of the drug. Then a couple of months later, he was like, nah, I'm not lowering the price. Vanity Fair nicknamed Shikrelli the Pharma Bro. On December 17, 2015, the FBI arrested Shikrelli and he was indicted on federal charges of securities fraud, but it wasn't a crime related to the price gouging, but rather it had to do with a time when he had founded some hedge fund company called MSMB Capital Management which was a Ponzi scheme. And what he was doing was starting a company, getting investors, and then starting a new company to get new investors to pay off the first ones, and then he would just keep going. A federal prosecutor stated that Shikrelli engaged in multiple schemes to ensnare investors through a web of lies and deceit. But Shikrelli was interviewed by a reporter with the Wall Street Journal where he said that the only reason that he was being targeted by the feds is because of the drug price hikes and his flamboyant personality. Interestingly enough, the toughest part 
of prosecuting Shkreli was the fact that they actually had a really hard time finding an unbiased jury because this guy was such a scumbag, he was pretty much universally detested. Potential jurors were saying things like, yeah, I know who this guy is and I hate him. And another one said, well, he kind of looks like a dick. And one jury even said he disrespected the Wu-Tang Clan. Okay, so what the heck is that all about? Well, this is what it said of that comment in Vanity Fair in January of 2020 in an article that they published. Shikreli's current stint in prison is for other offenses that predate his time as the showboating farmer bro who was eventually booted off of Twitter after harassing female journalists. Jury selection in his trial was complicated by his public demeanor. An individual only known as juror number 59 was dismissed by the court after letting it be known that he could not be unbiased towards Shikreli because he disrespected the Wu-Tang Clan. You see, Shikreli won Once Upon a Time in Shallowin, Wu-Tang's one-of-a-kind album recorded in secret at an auction in 2015. The group, looking to resurrect a quote-unquote patronage concept, stipulated that the new owner could not exploit the work for personal gain, but could share it at listening parties. When Shikreli was still on social media, he regularly bragged about owning it. He would say things like, I'll probably never hear it. I just thought it would be funny to keep it from people. Shikreli was forced to turn the album over to the U.S. government after his conviction. Uncle Sam then sold it to a group called Pleaser Dow, investors in crypto and non-fungible tokens. So yeah, this Shikreli guy is some piece of work and nobody likes him, and yet there's still more. He had gone on trial in the summer of 2017 at the beginning of August, and he was found guilty on two counts of securities fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit securities fraud, but not guilty on five other counts. He said he was happy with the outcome, seeing as this was a witch hunt of epic proportions. So Shikreli was going to be out on bail while he was waiting to be sentenced. But about five weeks after he was convicted, the judge revoked his bail after he posted on Facebook offering $5,000 for a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair. The judge considered that to be solicitation to assault somebody, and that falls out of the First Amendment rights to the freedom of speech protections. He had other posts that said that he was planning on cloning Hillary. He called his posts satire, but they ended up tossing him in the Metro Detention Center in Brooklyn, New York. Six months later, in March of 2018, Shikreli was sentenced to seven years in prison and was ordered to forfeit about $7.5 million in assets. The Wu-Tang album was a part of that, along with some artwork by Pablo Picasso. And when everything was auctioned off, he paid off the money that he was ordered to pay. He is currently being housed at the federal prison located in Allenwood, Pennsylvania, and he's scheduled to be released in September of 2023. He's still estimated to be worth somewhere between 30 and $50 million, and he is purportedly continuing to run his scams from behind bars. 
The last person that I'm going to talk about is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He's on the disappointment list. I didn't know a whole lot about Christie outside of Bridgegate, which I will talk about in a moment, but that's not really why he made the list. In the summer of 2015, Christie formally began campaigning for President of the United States for the elections that were going to take place the following year. About seven months later, he dropped out after low polling numbers and receiving only about 7% of the overall vote in the New Hampshire primary. But while Christie was campaigning, he said lots of things criticizing fellow Republican candidate Donald Trump. And here are some of the things that he had to say. When asked about how Trump would handle an economic crisis if he were president, Christie said, quote, A crisis for Donald is when his favorite restaurant on the Upper East Side isn't open. When talking about welcoming Trump to the debate stage at a campaign stop in New Hampshire, Christie said, quote, Our friend Donald is coming back and really can't wait to welcome him unless someone insults him between now and Saturday. Maybe he won't show up. I don't know. This was in reference to Trump backing out of a debate because it was being moderated by then Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly, who Trump had been feuding with publicly. And it was a feud that had reached a fever pitch when Trump made a remark about not knowing what was wrong with Megyn, something about she's got blood coming out of everywhere. During a campaign stop in Iowa, a supporter in attendance said to Christie that he couldn't imagine Trump as president, and Christie replied, you're feeling my pain right now. If you think somehow this is just an act, this is like The Apprentice, I'm telling you, what you see is what you get. We don't need reality TV in the Oval Office right now. President of the United States is not a place for an entertainer. Then there was a time when Trump said this on November 21st, 2015 at a rally in Birmingham, Alabama. Quote, I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down, and I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. Thousands of people cheering. The next day, the host of ABC This Week, George Stephanopoulos, asked Trump if he was mistaken because that didn't happen, but Trump stood by what he said, and he doubled down. I saw it on television. I saw it. It was well covered at the time, George. Now, I know they don't like to talk about it, but it was well covered at the time. There were people over in New Jersey that were watching it, a heavy Arab population. They were cheering as the buildings came down. Not good. Well, political fact-checking website, politifact.com, took a deep dive into it. They looked back at what was on record regarding American Muslims in New Jersey celebrating the attacks. There were videos that were broadcasted prominently across the news outlets showing people celebrating, but that was happening in Palestinian territories, but none doing so in New Jersey or anywhere else in the United States for that matter. Of this, Christie said at another campaign stop, it didn't happen, and the fact is people can say anything, but the facts are the facts. And that didn't happen in New Jersey that day, and it hasn't happened since. Then there was a time when Trump said that he could shoot somebody in New York City and not lose any of his loyal supporters. 
Christie responded to this by saying, Donald will take himself down over time with some of the stuff that he says, and we all see that. You know, if he really thinks that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still keep voters, I think that's a bit much for most voters in the United States. However, Chris Christie ended up dropping out of the campaign and then summarily did a complete 180 and became a bona fide Trump supporter. The word was is that he was eyeballing the possibility of getting on the Republican ticket as the vice presidential nominee. Christie stated, I've gotten to know all the people on that stage, and there is none who is better prepared to provide America with a strong leadership that it needs both at home and around the world than Donald Trump. People started calling Chris Christie a puppet and a lapdog. Obviously, Christie was jockeying for a sweet job in the White House. And for a minute, he was on Trump's short list of possible running mates. But Christie's fantasies of becoming the vice pres came to a screeching halt when somebody advised Trump that it was probably not going to be a good idea because of the event that has been referred to as Bridgegate. Christie was passed up, and of course we know Mike Pence was eventually named Trump's running mate. A couple of months before the election, Christie did acknowledge that the Bridgegate scandal was the reason why he wasn't chosen as Trump's running mate. So, Bridgegate, I think a lot of you remember when this happened, especially those of you who are from, like, maybe the tri-state area. But Bridgegate is officially called the Fort Lee Lane Closure Scandal. According to a 2015 New York Times article, workers at the New York and New Jersey Port Authority shut down two out of the three access lanes from Fort Lee, New Jersey, to the toll plaza of the George Washington Bridge for a number of days beginning on September 9th, 2013. They were ordered to do so from several high-ranking officials on the New Jersey side of the Port Authority, which is operated cooperatively with officials from both states. So this bottleneck caused vehicles to obstruct traffic so much that the streets of the city of Fort Lee were essentially at a standstill. This caused school buses, commuters, and all emergency vehicles to become caught up in this traffic nightmare. Now, the lower level officials at the Port Authority tried telling the higher-ups that this was going to end very badly. However, they were ordered to not tell the Fort Lee police or any of their city officials. They called the closure a traffic study, but it didn't really make much sense because normally they give notice when things like that are going to be closed down. My fellow Southern Californians might remember Carmageddon 405 when some 10 miles of the 405 freeway was shut down for about 53 hours. And I think it might have happened twice over some different parts of the 405. It was all over the news since the 405 freeway is the busiest one in the United States. We were all warned to stay away and it all went pretty smoothly because people knew. 
we were aware to stay off and stay away, with the exception of a handful of rogue cyclists and joggers and drunk drivers, we avoided the 405 like the plague. But over there in New Jersey, nobody was given a heads up. This was all done in secret by the Jersey side of the Port Authority. And it happened on a weekend when nobody should have been messing with traffic. The days that the bridge was closed down to one lane included the first day of school, Yom Kippur, and the 9-11 anniversary. So when Fort Lee was completely tangled up with this nightmarish traffic because of the lane closures, the mayor of Fort Lee called, texted, and emailed the Port Authority, and then he did the same to Governor Christie, telling them that this was a public safety hazard, and he felt like he was being punished. But all of his communications were ignored. It eventually became clear that the lane closures were politically motivated. 30-minute commutes turned into four-hour commutes, and the people of Fort Lee were angry. A report later estimated that for each of the four days that the lanes were closed, there were 2,800 vehicle hours of delays, a total of 11,200 wasted hours. The executive director of the Port Authority on the New York side of things was contacted by a traffic columnist in New Jersey, and that director ordered those lanes to be reopened immediately. Come to find out, those New Jersey guys were going to keep those lanes closed for a month. It was eventually discovered through some leaked emails that the closure was ordered by David Wildstein, a former political blogger and a high school friend of Christie's. It was his job at the Port Authority to firmly protect New Jersey's interests. Christie's administration, as well as the Port Authority, insisted that the lanes were closed to study what would happen to traffic patterns and the executive director on the New Jersey side of the Port Authority, he was sent to give testimony before the state legislature a couple months later. It was revealed that two weeks later that there was no traffic study, that they were ordered to keep the lane closures a secret. About three months later, in January of 2014, there was another leaked email that was subpoenaed by the state legislature that showed that the deputy chief of staff to Chris Christie, Bridget Ann Kelly, had written in that email to David Wildstein one month before the lane closures that this was, quote, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. It took some time to figure out what sorts of charges could be filed, what kinds of crimes were being committed here, but after about a year and a half long federal investigation, Bridget Ann Kelly, Christie's Deputy Chief of Staff, Port Authority Executive Director on the New Jersey side, a gentleman by the name of Bill Baroni, and Christie's high school buddy, David Wildstein, were indicted on numerous and a variety of charges, including misusing the resources of the Port Authority, violating the rights of the citizens of Fort Lee to travel without government restriction when their own town was gridlocked as a result of the closures. It was a conspiracy to exact political vengeance against the mayor of Fort Lee, Mark Sokolich, for refusing to endorse Chris Christie. That is the level of pettiness that these people were operating at. 
Kelly and Baroni chose to fight the charges and pleaded not guilty, but Wildstein pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit fraud and conspiracy against civil rights, and he admitted that Kelly and Baroni worked with him on the plot. Kelly went to trial. She was convicted and sentenced to a year and a day in prison, but the Supreme Court overturned that conviction in 2020. Baroni was convicted also and sentenced to two years in prison, but his was overturned in the same Supreme Court decision as Kelly's. Chris Christie was never charged, but his presence was definitely felt all over the story. The scandal marred his political career. His presidential candidacy was severely hampered, as were any chances to be picked as the candidate for vice president. His reputation was tarnished. Since the January 6, 2021 attacks on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., Christie has distanced himself from Trump, and he currently sits on the board of directors of the New York Met. If y'all listening would like to see a full list of the disappointments that accompanied Elizabeth Holmes here in this Fortune magazine article, just Google the world's most disappointing leaders. But I think the articles that you can read for free each month are limited. And that's it. Thanks for listening. And we're out.